Hello. First off, if this sounds somewhat different, it's um, you know, like the recording. It's because this intro is being recorded from my hotel room in New York City. Yes, my hotel room, not my apartment, which, you know, it it just it's weird. I've I've been getting to come back here a lot since I I moved back. And um it's tough, man. You know, but New York City feels so wild right now. Like, I mean, it seriously does. Just going out there. I mean, just, I don't know, maybe maybe it's been, you know, the auctions. <laughs> no, not true. But like the energy is totally back. Uh, I've been out here the past few days and it's just been, it's been great to see people. It's been, you know, funny thing. Perfect example is a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't even know you moved. Because like, yeah, everybody's so focused on doing their own thing. Um, but the energy is totally back. But the truth is, it probably never left, right? Um, but it was a busy week. You know, was out here doing some recording, um, doing some pods, had a couple dinners, had some fun stuff, um, spent too much on a sandwich. And, uh, you know, it the, the best reminder of like that you're in New York City and and life is, and life will go on is you go to get a coffee and they say it's, Yes, I got a, I mean, it's a cold brew. It's a fancy guy. It's a fancy cold brew, New Orleans style, blue bottle, whatever. But it was $8. And I laughed and, of course, paid like an idiot. Um, I mean, what are you going to do? Am I going to walk out and say like, oh, how dare you? It was, it was so, it was dumb. But I I laughed awkwardly and paid even though, you know, it was an $8 coffee. Okay, this week, I chat with Silas Walton of A Collected Man. Speaking of the watch world, geez louise. For some folks, A Collected Man is an incredible watch blog. It's just this website. Spoiler, it's much more than that. They buy watches, they sell watches. But more importantly, for me, I'm just kind of giving my editorial here since this is a a podcast. (laughs) Um, But more importantly, they really showcase brands that you've never heard of, uh, but become obsessed with. Uh, seriously, most folks, as an aside, kind of most folks call um, these brands, these groups, the independents. I'm kind of air quoting that word, but they're usually names that sound like your friend's uncle. Uh, brands like George Daniels and Roger W. Smith and Daniel Roth. And by the way, I actually don't say that to detract. It just, it's not like Omega. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, but they are incredible, incredible watch brands. And Silas has really led the way on, I mean, and I'll say this, like more or less popularizing and bringing more attention to the independent watch companies out there because he's an independent guy, right? I mean, Silas explains how he went from restoring an old watch he got when he was 14 and selling it on eBay. Joke's on him. I would have kept it. Um, to creating his amazing commerce platform for watches. We chat about his experience in law, selling his collection of watches to get by, how a good lifestyle photo can go a long way. And we swap stories of breaking into the watch world. And if you're not a watch fan, you're still going to get into this. Because for me, this is more about being accepted into a place where you may not feel welcome. And this isn't like fake it till you make it. This is that I truly believe that more people do want people in their circle than they want to turn people away. And this conversation is a great example of that. Last but not least, we talk about the intersection of independent watchmaking and fine art. And uh, I even, uh, I make Silas choose what watch he would save in a fire. 
you know, the kind of dumb question, but the ones that people are like, actually, I do really do want to know that. But again, like if you're not into watches, you're still going to dig this pod. I'm so glad you're here. By the way, my name is Jeremy Kirkland. <laughs> this is Blamo. Let's go. Well, Silas, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, I, I want to hear a ton about a collected man, but pre-watches, pre-the world of watches, where what what were you up to? Like, wh- where are you from? Sure. So, well, th- first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I am a big Blamo fan, and um, I'm from London. I was born in London. Um, I've lived here with uh, the exception of a couple of years in Paris and actually in Russia, um, which is obviously topical at the moment. With those two mm-hmm. exceptions, I've, I've lived in London my entire life. Um, I started a collected man uh, in London in about 2014-15. Um, I just come back oh, from wow. yeah. So so I I just come back from, from business school. I'd, I'd been at um, law school and I'd worked in law briefly, and I'd realised that I would have been a really crap lawyer, a really bad <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> and Wait, why uh, when I, I just. Um, I have an eye for detail, but I don't have patience. And I think you have to be both patient and have an eye for detail to be a good lawyer mm. because you have to be able to do the same thing to a consistently high standard day in, day out, hour after hour, especially if you're in M&A or contract law. Um, and I just found it tremendously boring, tremendously quickly. But you know, many of my very best friends are lawyers and I admire them hugely and I think they, they love their jobs. So I think it's really just a question of kind of horses for courses. Um, right. some people are, some people are better built for certain things. Um, and fun enough, when I was at, at business school, again, all my friends became consultants or went into investment banking and I was like, yeah, this, this isn't me at all. Um, so I came back, I was doing a, um, an internship in private equity here in London. Um, oh, wow. I had to, uh, it was unpaid. It was part of my master's and I had to sell a couple of watches to, to make some cash, some watches that I bought from years earlier from my first paycheck when I worked in a law firm. Um, and that was kind of randomly how things started to come together. I was, I was in a team called Deal Origination that basically like I read business plans every day. I ran, I read brand new business plans every day. Um, every couple of days I would sit on meetings where people who wanted to buy out the companies that they worked for would come in and like pitch, pitch the business plan to this, this, um, PE fund that I was working at, um, or interning at rather. Um, and so I was not only reading business plans for like new ideas every, every day or so, but I was also meeting people who were quite inspiring, like, you know, entrepreneurially motivated people who wanted to kind of like, who thought they could do a better job than the people who ran their own companies or own their companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of that plus the bad experience of trying to make some money selling some watches was the original kind of Genesis story for the company, for the idea. Um, yeah, but were you into watches before then, or did, were you just looking at the watches at the time as like, oh, these are now worth X? Like, let me. Just- so, 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 yeah. So there were two things kind of running in parallel. There was, uh, I was definitely, I would say to people, I, I wasn't a watch guy. I wouldn't call myself a watch guy. I loved watches, like I love everything else. You know, I loved nice things. I like nice craft. I liked things that were made, you know, to a high standard. Um, you know, my, uh, I had like a relative who was a tailor. I had, you know, a relative who was, um, prototype engineer. I kind of like, I, I, I had relatives who enjoyed making things with their hands. Um, 
and I'd sort of, I'd received a, my great grandfather's pocket watch on my 18th birthday. I'd received a, oh, my other, I'd received my other great grandfather's pocket watch. I think when I was 21, um, you know, my first two paychecks when I got proper jobs went on watches. Uh, did someone first, tell you to do that though? Like to buy watches? I, the people that I know who did that were like, Oh, I did that because that was a, it was a family thing, right? Like your first paycheck, I don't know, say here, you grew up in the Midwest. Your first paycheck, that's your car money, right? Like now, now you got to go get a car. Um, it was the opposite. In fact, I think everyone thought I was crazy and incredibly indulgent, uh, especially especially as my salary wasn't like, you know, it was entry-level kind of paralegal. Sure. Um, and I just kind of, but I was obsessed what? without being, yeah, I was obsessed without being a watch guy. Like I, I, I definitely wasn't, you know, my first watch had a quartz movement and the Cartier tank. Um, and I absolutely loved that watch because I thought it was a really cool dress watch. It discreetly slipped under my wrist with a suit. Um, it was incredibly sort of, everything was classic about it, but I didn't know anything about what's versus mechanical or anything to that effect. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I, so I had this kind of gentle obsession, but it was, it definitely, I definitely didn't consider myself to be in a particular kind of bracket. Um, I remember when I was like 15, 15 or 14, I probably, you know, should have guessed that one day I would end up selling watches because I, I was at a flea market on a dusty uh, motorway, not a motorway, like a dusty back road, large back road in the middle of nowhere in Normandy in France, um, where I spent a lot of my holidays. Um, and I found this pocket watch that was absolutely tarnished, and damaged and didn't work. Nothing was broken, but like the watch itself wasn't operating and it was, you know, really tarnished. And I remember it had this kind of like, debossed i think it's technically debossed when it protrudes from the metal debossed kind of like locomotive pattern on the case back and i took it i paid like 50 cents for this thing that, that they you know they didn't even know they had in the back of a drawer somewhere because it was one of these things that was on the side of the road and it was just a complete mess everything was spread out everywhere and everything was covered in a thick layer of dust and i took this thing home with a knife in my back in in the garage like with a almost like a cheese knife i managed to like pop open the back and the movement was fine and I, I blew on on the balance wheel because I vaguely knew what this thing was. And I wound it and I got it going. So I knew it wasn't like broken, broken. Something wasn't, you know, it was winding, but something, you know, it wasn't starting on its own. Um, and although I didn't know anything about watches, like, and, you know, I, I probably did more damage than good. I kind of cleaned this watch up pretty superficially. Turns out it was, you know, solid silver. Um, and I went home and I, and I put it on eBay, you know, instead of keeping this thing. <laughs> Instead of instead of keeping this thing that like would have been a great kind of like you know thing for me to to refer to later in stories or articles or whatever, I put it on eBay and sold it for like 150 pounds, and I was like that was super not what I expected to hear. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know, but like, but but the truth is, I think that um, I think it hadn't. I think it did have an impact because I saw that. Um, this is my first kind of contact with something that I'd never kind of come across before. I'd never had a pocket watch in my hands. I'd never known anything about watches really at this age, you know, from 50 cents to 150 pounds. It was kind of like, well, this is a bit crazy. Um, and I remember just kind of like taking good photos, like half decent lifestyle photos for eBay, you know, 2000 and yeah. I mean, whatever my math is terrible, but it was quite a long time ago. Um, and I remember that had an impact. And then that certainly kind of like, that then kind of snowballed a little bit. But when I started the company to kind of go all the way back to the start, when I started the company, I definitely thought of myself as going into a, a, a market and a business first because I didn't mm -hmm. want to be one of those guys 
who tried to convert their passion in, of something that they enjoyed, you know, almost as a hobbyist or an amateur or as an enthusiast into a business. Because I thought, you know, the biggest risk there was that I would end up being emotionally overly connected to the product I was selling. And then that would blind me to kind of the practical reality of business, which is that sometimes you just have to cut your losses. If you make a mistake, you have to know when to move on. If, if it's an object that you're going to be putting, you know, money into with a view to a return, you have to be pragmatic. Um, and so I kind of, I think I basically pushed down as much as possible on the kind of like the little voice in my head that was like, oh, this is super cool. I love these things. These are amazing. I, you know, I want to, you know, I want to have as many as I can and I want to surround myself with them and aren't I lucky? I tried to kind of suppress that as much as possible. And it's really only been in the last couple of years where things have kind of like got to a point where I can take a breath and, you know, the company is bigger. We're 16 now, you know, things are going, you know, really well where I've started to come back into collecting. And so I've been, yeah, I've been, I've been, I'm, a, I'm more of a collector today in an authentic sense, irrespective of kind of value or diversity of collection than I think I ever was. Uh, and I'm more passionate about collecting than, than, than I ever was. Um, but it started off business first. See, that's generally the opposite of what I would expect to hear in the sense that passion, passion. And, and first off, I don't want to say that like passion is in a way that's almost pejorative, but the sense that yeah, you become so attached to these things. And, and I get it for a lot of people that, you know, watches like for me, or sometimes it's like clothes, it's like they're your baseball cards, they they mean, they mean a relationship, they mean an accomplishment and achievement. Um, you know, and, and then obviously, it has monetary value outside of the memory. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, the memory outweighs the, the the value. And in your case, it sounded like you were like, Oh, my gosh, this is means to a dream like a larger thing into which like this is growing the company and if i hold on to this stuff too tightly i'm going to torpedo the company because i do believe that that is a bit of a common trait with other folks that are kind of like trying to do this watch thing is there there's every decision becomes so emotional Mm -hmm. um i i think like that is that's really rare and that's that's pretty cool that you were able to do that but now you're all about passion of the of the collecting, right? So, so yeah. I mean, I I, I caught um, I caught the the line show. What are you saying? And and yeah, I, I think it is a bit unusual. Um, I definitely think that I went into it with that mentality. So, so the one thing that I loved at business school, the one subject that I, one thing that I really was passionate about was strategy, like kind of big picture strategy. Um, and I do remember one of our kind of like visiting speakers came and delivered a talk on niches and he was like find a niche and occupy it like that's that's my that was like his number one like takeaway and and <clears throat> recommendation to anyone thinking about starting a company starting a company it's a lot easier to find a niche and to really kind of go in go into it and become a kind of specialist and and make sure that you're really expert in that space before you do anything else and i think that i was really hyper conscious of how little I knew relative to uh, a space where people are, you know, at all levels of enthusiasm know a lot, you know, and the more enthusiastic and the more experienced the kind of collector, the greater the depth of of knowledge. And so uh, there was no chance I was going to be able to compete. There was no chance I was going to be able to kind of go toe for toe 
in the horology space in the watch world with with people who are obviously absolute experts in their space even if they did it for fun and so i i preferred the idea of being incredibly transparent about that and being very kind of like cars on the table look i'm you know i i know probably a hundredth of what you know or a tenth of what you know but what i can tell you is that i've read every single article I've consumed every report, read, found every bit of data I possibly can, going back as far as I possibly can on, on the market that I'm interested in, which is, which is the kind of pre-owned luxury market. Um, and I have tested this idea repeatedly and I've talked to people and I've anonymously posted it on forums and been destroyed um, because I wasn't brave enough to do it under my own name, so I used a pseudonym. But like I've, I've like tested the shit out of this idea. And so I'm confident about the market. I'm confident about the opportunity. Um, and I can surround myself with people who are a lot smarter than me, who have a much better knowledge of the kind of things that, that relate to kind of expertise. Um, but none of those people can kind of necessarily do the thing that I think I can do. None of the people have had that idea and none of, no one I know has the, you know, is going to go out and do this thing that I've kind of put together over 40 or 50 pages. So. So I just kind of, I figured that I would learn all that stuff as I went along. And then I would turn to people who I trusted, um, wherever there was a gap in my knowledge, or I felt that I just, you know, was very much out of my depth. Um, and that's what we did. You know, I've been very lucky. I've been, you know, really, I've had some amazingly smart people to call on. Did you, when you first were getting into watches, and I feel like this is kind of a common thing, was it the most welcoming world? Because I think historically... And I don't say this to bash on anyone, but I think it's tough to break into. And a lot of the information titans, you know, the, the, the old standbys that everyone knows, maybe they're not the same now, but I don't think they're the most welcoming group of folks. And I say that because when I first got into watches, I've told this story before, I was, um, I was writing for Esquire and I was at this uh, Audemars Piguet event and there's a bunch of goofballs there, right? None of them are not working right now, at least in watches. I know that. And, you know, and this guy comes up to me and he's like, oh, I see you got a little sub there. All right. You kind of get in your training wheels. And I was like, training wheels? And, and this guy did mm. not know the multiple jobs I was working and all these things I was doing just to earn that. Like, it wasn't given to me. I busted my ass. I did everything I can. And this ding dong mm. comes in and like basically mm. dethrones me in 10 mm. seconds. And it, it really broke my heart. And thankfully, someone like Paul Boutros was there and was like, hey, that's great. Like, and starts talking to me about it and was super cool. And it's funny, like Paul Boutros, Mr. Rocket Scientist comes in and big dogs and like kind of protects me, you know, and thankfully other people like Paul Lerner mm. of AP was just like, bad, don't worry about, you know, but like that really threw me off. That initial experience made me yeah, like, oh, it's, um... maybe this isn't. The cool kid club. Yeah, it, I've always we definitely had. Um, I certainly did, and, and we as a company, I think for for quite a long time, had a kind of underdog mentality. Um, it was a very intimidating, extremely cliquey, very small mm -hmm. world, um, and uh, I was very fortunate to be able to turn to a handful of people who kind mm -hmm. of. Um, as you say, kind of, uh, kind of put a, a hand on my shoulder a bit like Paul did. Um, and you do have to kind of like, you know, there are just good people like Paul. There are genuinely nice people. Um, but, you know, particularly at the kind of, particularly at the kind of high end of, of the watch industry or the watch space, 
Um, there is a very significant amount of snobbery and a lot of kind of zero-sum thinking, um, or at least historically, I would say. I think that a lot of that has changed. And I think that, yes, sure. you know, I think people like, you know, I think people like Ben have kind of, you Climber. know, really, yeah, sorry, Ben Climber really like broken the mold in, 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 in the US and that kind of had a, a really healthy kind of cascade effect all over the world. And, and it's not just him. There are, there are loads of very talented younger people who've come into this space now who have, you know, who don't have any kind of chip on their shoulder at all. Um, but I can say that at least relative to kind of the world I was initially in, which was very much the kind of London centric space, it was, you know, I, I always find this crazy to say, but I didn't even know Hadinki when I started my company. I, I didn't, which is mad because, you know, within That's within okay. a tiny, well, but it, but it's mad because like you know it, suddenly I just heard about Hadinki all the time. But I but I'd started my I'd written my business plan and I'd, I'd done all this reading, but it had been very obsessively UK focused. So uh, I knew I knew I knew everything about Watchfinder, the the pre-owned watch business that was sold to Richemont. I knew everything about the pre-owned watch market here in the UK. I'd never heard of Ben Kleiner. I'd never heard of Hadinki, and then I sort of I remember someone emailed me an article from Hadinki either just before or just after I pitched my idea um, and raised some kind of like very small amount of seed money from from friends and family. And I was like, oh, what's this website? That's really cool. It's like irritatingly cool with like, this is really interesting bits of content that's like really, you know, not at all stuffy and and like, you know, um, you know, loving itself. And I just kind of, I was like, oh, shit. Someone has done something. <laughs> Someone has done something really good, you know. And I, and I remember, like, and then I kind of went and read fifty of their articles. Like, wow, this is this is incredible. Because I I was this is a slight tangent, but I was kind of like inspired by the kind of I think it was I'd always been a fan of Mr. Porter, you know, uh, oh, and yeah. I kind of and I'd always been a fan of that kind of aesthetic and that model of e-commerce. Even you know, I was a I was a very 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 modest client of theirs you know almost from day one like very modest but i remember kind of that experience and thinking this is super cool like why would i go to a shop and i can do this you know in my my kind of um in my gap between tutorials whatever it was anyway i mean it's you know it's probably uh um but yeah so so the world the uk world was very small and it was very traditional and you know, I didn't know anyone in marketing or comms. I didn't know anyone in PR. Um, and, you know, in Switzerland, I remember the first time I went to Baselworld, I was terrified of like all these kind of like big brands and all these big people. And I was kind of being kind of walked around by a, um, a collector investor that I, that I trusted who was really helping me out called David Sitwell. And he was kind of like, thrusting me forwards to kind of meet these people and i was just kind of like trying to like get back and 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 disappear behind his shoulder um but it was you know very quickly i kind of got invested in it and got to know people and there were a handful of people who really kind of were the opposite they weren't cliquey they were entrepreneurially minded and they were very interested but it, it was a very intimidating very close space um and you know i got a lot of um very kind of dismissive kind of pats on pats on the head uh, by by a lot of people yeah. and all i could think of at the time to be absolutely frank was that's fine i'm i'm going to really enjoy showing you you know the potential that online and lifestyle and instagram all these kind of revolutionary concepts uh can like represent to this very closed old fashioned kind of pre-owned rare watch kind of you know um operators and uh you know but but 
I do understand. And as I've got older, I do sympathize. I recognize that like when you've been doing something for a long time, you've done it to a very high standard and you've created a kind of position where you're the kind of go-to respected operator. If something then suddenly changes that in, in quite a short space of time that's outside of your control, whether it's, whether it's the digitalization of your market or the arrival of social media and you have no idea how to engage or interact with these things, I totally get why it's why it's uncomfortable and why you probably prefer to kind of bury your head in the sand rather than acknowledge this is something you should jump on. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's, that's the risk. And, and probably, you know, if I stick around for too long, that will probably happen to me at some point, you know, I'll be the, I'll be the ostrich. Well, it sounds like you'll have a little bit more, uh, you know, hindsight to, to kind of, to understand and empathize a bit. You know, I, the joke, like people always talk about is like, man, what if, Blockbuster Video, yeah. which was like the premier video rental company, would have just bought Netflix <laughs> ages ago, you know, and they didn't, obviously, and and they're they're gone. I think there's technically one left, and people go there for fun to kind of take pictures of. But it's like I I, I view that too, and I mean, I remember going to I don't know whatever it's called now, Watches and Wonders or Basel or you know, I've lost track the SIH or yeah, and, and going there and you know just just being younger mm. right and people just being like oh mm. okay you like are you you're just you don't get this like you're not in this or you don't have the experience and i will say it's almost like and to anyone else who's listening to like once you kind of get through level one of whatever snobbery or stuff that's there 99 percent of the people i've come in contact with and interacted with since are overwhelmingly kind and generous and want to help you and want to educate you um, you know, the amount of people I know where we've, we've pooled our money to get Mondani books and all that sort of, like all of that, like reference guides. And I mean, it, it's far more welcoming than I think the initial first impressions. So I don't like say that to badmouth anyone. No, hundred percent. <laughs> no, I a hundred percent agree. Wasn't it, didn't Netflix, uh, offer to sell to Blockbuster for like $50 million in their like second year or something? Wasn't there, I read the book and, uh, you know, yeah. blockbusters, blockbuster passed on that. It's just like, wow, you must regret that forever, <laughs> like forever. <laughs> right, and I think that's the thing. And I, I'm sure that this ex this exact model and situation exists right now, mm. and definitely in the 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 luxury and jewelry place. Because I mean, look at you know, we saw this happen way before with uh, every like Louis Vuitton. Prada, all these companies that refused mm. to do e-commerce. Mm. And then they saw companies like Mr. Porter and all these other people. And it's like, look, the consumer loves your store, mm. but they don't want to go mm. in. Like they want, and also, you know how much money exists in the Midwest where there is no Louis Vuitton, where there is no, you know, go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a lot of millionaires there. It's so it's just like then they kind of wake up and they're like, oh, okay, maybe we'll do mm. this. And you you lost, you lost the market yeah. because people are just used to going to Mr. Porter or going to Farfetch or going to whatever it is. So I, it'll be interesting. You know, I mean, people make jokes like, is Patek Philippe ever going to sell direct? Like, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they, they do in a sense. Well, they, they had to, um, they had to authorize their, uh, so they had to give permission to their authorized dealers at the start of COVID uh, in, um, right. uh, what was it called? Sorry. You, you'd think that I wouldn't have lost it in 2020 sort of, I think it was like, I think it must've been like April, May, 2020. They basically gave permission yeah. to the authorized retailers to sell stock directly online, whether it was by email or whether it was Corona 24, I, I can't remember. 
Um, but it, 224, because that's a great experience. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But like, but but like, my my point is like everything. It, it it kind of shocks me how it's so obvious that there's an inevitability to all these things. Like, it doesn't matter what space you're in. Everything, like some bits of obviously fashion, learned this five, six, seven, right. eight, ten years ago. Like, it's just you know the traditional hard luxury space is perhaps five years behind the curve, let's say, and the Swiss hard luxury space in terms of horology is another three years. But like, it's so absolutely inevitable that all of this stuff will go online. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And, you know, everything will be digital. I'm not saying you'll lose the best parts of like the, like the, the, the bricks and mortar. You know, there's, gonna, there's always going to be an experiential aspect that can't be replicated online. But, you know, the vast majority of our clients are in North America or Southeast Asia. And they've always been, you know, early adopters, I think, of, of technology and, and kind of e-commerce, you know, the progress of e-commerce, you know, where perhaps in the UK, traditionally, there was a lot more kind of, oh, I want to go see it, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't had a client, you know, really, as far as I can recall, we haven't had a client come in and see us reviewing because we suspended them in several years. We sell everything mm -hmm. remotely. So you see it on social media, you see it on Instagram, or you see it on the website. You get in touch. It's a conversation. It's an email. It's a WhatsApp. It's a DM on Instagram, whatever it may be. It's an invoice. So that's kind of like old school kind of interaction. But everything is done remotely, and it's all done on the basis of trust and reputation and brand and imagery and and detailed description and and all those things. And and I think that you know uh, that that's why, like, yes, absolutely. I I, I don't I can't speak for Patek Philippe. I've, I've never had a conversation with Terry Stan about this in my life. In fact, I've never had the pleasure of meeting the person, the man in in person. But you know, I couldn't you know I couldn't be more certain that at some point Patek Philippe will sell things online. I also think Patek Philippe will go into pre-owned. I can't say that it's now. I can't say that it's in fifteen years. But there is a you know, the, the pre-owned markets, just like everyone was like, no, they're not going to go on Instagram. They're not going to go on Instagram. Yeah, of course they went on Instagram. Of course they went on Instagram. Of course they'd create an Instagram account. Of course they're going to sell pre-owned yeah. at some point. It's just that there is a, you know, that, that whole kind of, you know, you want to have, if you don't do it, you have no impact. Right now, anyone in the world can put one of your products online and just post it with terrible photos and they choose the price and, you as the brand have no impact on how that's perceived. And so you're just kind of sitting there and getting upset about the fact that, you know, clients are, I don't know, you know, flipping things for five times what they're worth or, or half the original retail, depending upon the model. The only way you can have an impact on that because you can't control it is by participating. The only way you can have an impact is by, you know, deciding, you know what, we're going to partner with these people. So, so look at, um, uh, the gentleman you had a while back, Alex Mill, the commercial director at uh, Fisher Mill. Um, you know, there's a brand that that is engaged in pre-owned. You know, in in Japan and in London, they have an authorized pre-owned boutique or a pre-owned partner. Now, obviously, you know, it was not saying you know in the business that I'm in, I would love to be doing stuff like that with Fisher Mill. But in the absence of that opportunity. I still think it's incredibly smart of them to have engaged in that market because they've they're, they're they're sort of they're having an impact and they're able to shape what that market looks like. So if you know in ten years time when Patek Philippe or fifteen years time decide to engage, they'll probably want to, they'll, they'll either do it themselves or they'll do it in collaboration with a third party, whether it's an auction house or an actor like like a collected man or somebody else. 
where they feel like there is an alignment of approach and alignment of kind of like fundamental tastes and principles. And, and there's a kind of an alignment of brand positioning and trust that means that it is mutually beneficial, or at least from their point of view, beneficial to them to have some sort of like direct or hands-off involvement in that market, mm-hmm. which means that they're not just, you know, effectively kind of spectators They're they're in some way driving that conversation. And that's what I say to all the brands that we work with and that I, you know, all the kind of independent watchmakers that I kind of, you know, engage with, you know, if you are, what's, what, isn't there an old expression about like, if you're not the, I forget, it's like, if you're not the, if you're not the dinosaur or the meal or something to that effect, oh, you know, right, there's, yeah. there, there's some truth to the idea that like, if you're, if you're not helping shape that conversation, you're left out. So I'm absolutely the view that, that um, this market will go more digital, more sophisticated, and all the major actors will participate. Um, I, I think it's, it's definitely interesting because there are some like Richemont brands and other watch companies that are, that are like not directly, but are embracing digital in the sense that they're like, oh, you know, like a, a buddy of mine is starting a digital AD and all these watch companies are like, yeah, we're in. And they're not, you know, it, I would say 10 years ago, they'd be like, how dare mm-hmm. you? You need to build this store. You need to be in this location with this zip code and this build out. And it's going to cost you this much money. And I'll, I will say that uh, it is not cheap to make a digital store in any way, shape or form. And I think it probably costs maybe just as much, if not more than to do physical <laughs> retail. However, um, there are companies that you know, watch brands that are more open to that. And I still think there's a way where you can do the AD and the, you know, and the, the manufacturer model, if they want, it doesn't have to be that. Cause I know that some people are like, oh, well, you know, Rolex or any of these companies would never forsake the, you know, all the AD partners. And it's like, I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, I, I'm sure that there's some sort of partnership out there somewhere. I think we're also seeing it happen with cars, yeah. right? Like that's been the biggest thing into which, I'm sure you saw like ages ago, Ford basically was like, hey, we're not going to ship you cars anymore. People will order the cars. We will make the car that they want, and then we'll send you the car. And now you get what you want. And it's like, for some people, they're so thrown off by that. But it's like, I would love to go to a Rolex site and say, I want this watch with this bracelet and this, you know, dial. And if I have to wait six months, cool, but I can now walk to the AD or whatever and go and get it. Cool. Like, you know, I am... I 100% think that will happen. I mean, it's it's harder to imagine, you know, so, so Rolex has such a dominant position in the market. It's so, like, strong. It's done so well for so long. It's so consistently reinvested in its R&D and in its brand, but it's also kept things very tight, and they make mm-hmm. very small kind of, um, very small kind of inflection changes to their, um, to their lineup or to, to how they develop watches, et cetera, every year. So it's, they never kind of shock anyone. It's always more or less the same thing. It just gets a little bit varied every time. But the underlying R&D is, is amazing. Um, and the quality is so consistent. But, you know, for me, you know, Rolex is the, is the kind of the Porsche of the, of the watch world. And you, can, and you can custom design Porsche you know, on their websites. And, and, um, I know there are steps involved and I've not done it, but I know people who have done it. And, um, why would you not be able to ultimately get to a point where you can, I'm not saying you can custom design a Rolex, but you can, why would you not get to a point where some of the stock every year was directly available through the Rolex website? 
Um, I know that they don't give a particularly large margin to their retailers because, you know, it's basically like the Bank of England giving, um, you know, somebody the right to sell gold bars. You know, it's a pretty solid thing. Like it's, you know, you don't need to incentivize people to sell Rolexes. They're going to sell themselves. But, yeah. um, but it, it does seem inevitable. Um, you know, look, Udmapi Gear has massively tightened its retail network. Um, it stands to reason that brands that want to increasingly control the narrative around their image and around their story and around the customer experience are going to say to themselves, well, why would we give up 20 or 30% of our margin to partners unless there's like a historically deep relationship there that means that we owe them because they were with us when things were bad and like they really supported us you know, during the downtimes. Outside of those relationships where perhaps there's like a really important geographic relationship there or, you know, where they're really present across the entire market. And so ultimately it's just a lot easier to work with them. If there isn't like an obvious value add, why would a brand continue to to kind of give that margin to a traditional retailer right. rather than distribute the product themselves directly? Um, look at look at Hedinki. You know, that for me makes perfect sense. Um you know, you've got a platform that has a very significant reach that successfully targets a really interesting demographic um, that adds a huge amount of value on its content side. Like it will lump it, they, they they produce media and content that's you know really really interesting and relevant to their to their audience. Um, and they've invested in a distribution network and model that that works. So why would you why would you not want to kind of align yourself with a platform like Hedinki and retail through them? I, I, you know, it, for me, that totally makes sense because it's an obvious value add. Um, for, for the kind of more traditional operators, um, I think it's just a sort of, you know, that's the question they have to ask themselves. Are they, are they adding value to the customer experience in some way that kind of reflects positively on the brand or are they just a pickup point? Is it like an Amazon drop-off point where you can just come and pick up your parcel, you can come and pick up your watch, but really it's nothing more than a medium for exchange? Um, if it's if it's more the the latter than the former, then I would say that there's you know it's probably not going to last forever. Um, but it's not difficult to imagine a world where um, where you know those traditional you know retailers with three or four boutiques or, or you know th three or four branches would be able to reinvent themselves by just tapping into their network investing a bit of what they make every year into digital content into something you know create some kind of usp for themselves um and immediately they kind of re-inject relevance into their into their business model um mm. so it's it's definitely not all doom and gloom i just think that if the, the truth is in every market and every business and i say this as much for us as, as for anybody else complacency kills you know, if you get complacent and you do nothing to remain relevant, you know, whether that's from a business point of view or a marketing point of view or a content point of view, et cetera, then, you know, it's, it's, you've got no one to blame but yourself. Yeah. And I also, I think size can kill. I mean, I remember way, way, way back in the day, if you were sold on Amazon, you were like, cool, <laughs> right? Like, oh my gosh. And they're on Amazon. That is so cool. And now, I would say the majority of the things that I do see on Amazon, I'm like, I don't know if I trust that. I'm actually not going to buy it. I'm going to go to like a preferred retailer that's going to stand behind it. And that, you know, and so, but it's like, it's so big, mm. you know, and especially with watches where I believe, I mean, almost, you know, 90% of all watches 
basically do the same. They tell you mm-hmm. the time, you know, and I don't say that to belittle them. I'm saying that like that, the, what this, this sole purpose is. And so, so much of the market is also driven by hype and coolness and what collectors like and what this person likes. And, and so if that goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it, it definitely makes me kind of wonder, but I do say that to, to bring the conversation back to, um, a collected man, because one of the things like I would say you're not like a site that's like, hey, we're going to sell your your Rolex you just bought from an AD and you're trying to flip. Like you guys have a strong focus specifically on independence, uh, on watches where watch dudes I know that are losing their mind over Grunfelds and stuff like that. So I am curious how you kind of, and I know that is not your your main bread and butter, but how you kind of got into that niche a bit. Yeah, so we... When, when it all started at the very, very, very beginning, originally I expected us to be in sort of the mid-market luxury space. So I thought we'd be, I thought right. we would be in the kind of Submarine and Daytona space. Um, but, you know, that was like eight, almost eight years ago. And within about six months, we pivoted simply through the kind of like sudden realization and experience that there was this much, much more niche space mm-hmm. in the kind of independent watchmaking but also kind of rare vintage, rare neo-vintage, and kind of slightly more rare rare kind of contemporary, complicated watch-making kind of like market for an alternative to the kind of like transaction between forum members, right? So so there was a time Mm. when, and I know you talked about it with Mark um, uh, on on the podcast about all the, was it the Star Forum? uh, yeah. You know, and, and I, I knew yeah. nothing. I knew nothing about that stuff. And, and listening to that podcast was like, well, God yeah, no, you. I mean, like, and, and all about the smoking, uh, the cigar kind of WhatsApp groups that he was on and, and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, there, there was, a, you know, watches were exactly the same. Everything was done via forums. The kind of the big collectors would sell between each other on forums. You know, someone would post, they want to buy something or someone would post a watch they had to sell and they would be endorsed by a bunch of people and they provide references. It was like, okay, so you can get a reference of X, Y, Z and the photos would be crummy and this, that, and the other. But, but that's how it worked because they knew each other, they trust each yeah. other and it was a small, small circle and it made perfect sense. Um, but for me, it made sense that there was obviously going to be a bunch of people who weren't on the forums or who were intimidated by the forums, just like they'd be intimidated by going into a, a fancy boutique on you know, Burlington Arcade, in Burlington Arcade or wherever it may be, or Bond Street. And so what I wanted to do, I thought, you know, there's obviously an interest in this. There's obviously seemingly more demand than supply. There's very little sophistication in this space whatsoever. The independent watchmakers themselves are all concentrating on making their watches. They haven't got the time nor the resource uh, to be able to, like, have people monitoring their social media if they even know it exists, marketing, you know, they might have one person who responds to emails, you know, who who is a part-time employee. And so there was obviously this kind of, like, there was this interest. And, and independent watchmaking, historically, it was always something you kind of graduated to once you've been through everything else. As far as I can tell, for as long as I've been in this space, historically, you would go through everything else you'd go for rolex you go through patek you go through Marpigier, you go through langenzerner you'd go through all these brands vacheron etc and at a certain point maybe you'd been collecting for 5 10 20 years you'd kind of get bored and you'd be like okay so you know i've i'm comfortable with the amount of money that i'm putting into this this hobby i have the disposable income to be able to kind of like comfortably afford to buy these things you know on an ongoing basis ish um and you'd go to Basel and, and or, or, you know, one of the watch 
uh, maybe you'd go on a tour somewhere in Switzerland, watchmaking tour, or through the forums, you discover there were these, there were these really interesting independent watchmakers who'd make 10 watches a year on the Isle of Man, for example, or 20 watches a year in, you know, Neuchâtel or in Moitié or, um, you know, somewhere else on the other side of the world. And, you know, w- when I came into this, it really was a tiny, tiny space. There were a handful of names that were respected. You know, it was Dufour, it was Smith, it was Daniels. Um, you know, Laurent Ferrier was relatively new then. Um, oh, yeah, you know, Richard, right. Richard P. and Acrivia didn't exist. Well, Acrivia existed, but, but you know, n- we didn't really know each other. We didn't know them. Um, you know, it was tiny. It was a really, really, really small world. Um, Karev Kleinen, Stepan Sapaneva, and the Grunfeld brothers. And, and so basically, we just kind of trod very carefully. I remember we, we offered one watch that... Um, you know, had only a handful of people interested in it, Vutelein and uh, uh, an independent Swiss-made watch by a Finnish watchmaker. Mm-hmm. And it sold, you know, relatively quickly, despite the fact that the audience was much smaller. And then we did another one and, and that sold. And then the Smith sold. And these these watches were, you know, at significant price points. And I think that, well, what I'd understood was that you would get into this basically as a collector when you wanted to essentially patronize someone because you saw it as almost you were collecting it was almost like an artist you'd go in and you'd go and see the watchmaker you'd go to the house you'd meet their wife you'd meet their kids you'd have a meal and then at the end of it you'd agree to spend a hundred thousand dollars or eighty thousand dollars on a watch and you knew to a relatively high degree of probability that you would be you would immediately lose 30 or 40 percent of the value of the watch if you ever wanted to resell it because that's simply that was the nature of the beast and then you know, and all those transactions would happen in a really unsophisticated way. The watchmakers themselves were terrified of the pre-owned market. They didn't want to engage. They were, they, most of them hated the auction world because they were constantly embarrassed by the results when, you know, watchmakers, when, when auctions would just chuck watches into sales with every other brand at all different price points. And they felt that they, you know, no one was really going to the trouble of marketing or explaining what the watch was properly. But essentially, um, you know, essentially it was, situation that was very unsophisticated and and we just kind of we dipped our toe in and discovered that there was a lot of interest we realized that there was a demand for these types of watches and there were loads of people who weren't on the forums and actually these watches lent themselves to kind of instagram photography and we were putting up two professional photographs a day on instagram every day since we started the company like eight years ago and and in the early days there weren't that many big watch profiles um yeah and so, and, and it all sort of, so it all came together and one thing led to another and within a couple of years, we were just specialized in the rare watch space. And we had, we were the first company, the only company in the world, really, as far as I'm aware, to get the official endorsement, pre-owned endorsement from Roger Smith, Philippe Dufour and Carrie Wuttleinen for their pre-owned watches. In those days, other than Steve Halleck in California, who was doing a great job, nobody else was remotely interested in the pre-owned side of, of, of independent watchmaking. It was just... which. I cannot stress like how, how big of a deal that is. I mean, if we would kind of turn this to the art world, I mean, it, it, that's like, I don't know. I don't know if that's a Rothko <laughs> thing on your wall, but like. It's that, a Rothko like print, the, uh, sadly, uh, not the original. Oh yeah. I assume, I assumed it was a print. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, other than like a hundred million dollars hanging on your wall, but like, <laughs> but. Um, the pre-on watch business isn't that good stuff. <laughs> but like, that is like a artist saying that oh i approve of this transaction i mean imagine you know i'm sure if if uh warhol would have lived long enough that he would have created some sort of 
you know, place where everyone, other people could go and buy and sell his art. And I think like that endorsement is just so huge. But the cool thing that's happening now is like, you're seeing this almost, I don't know, hoodinky effect for lack of better term, into which people are learning more about these independents than the independents are able to offer themselves. Um, and then that's actually growing enthusiasm for the market, which drives the market up further and gets people more and more excited. And you like, so you kind of self-perpetuate that. And I actually, I say that in a good way, not because I know some people hear that and they're like, oh, I'll never be able to afford it because it always goes up. And it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, that that's, that's art has always been like that. It'll, you know, it'll go up and down, but I think because it's so mm-hmm. limited, right? I mean, and, I, and and you guys being this information source for it, I think is great because it, it turns on new people. And I don't ever think we're going to have like a swatchification of people that are buying Rolex, but you're definitely seeing people that are really graduating much quicker out of all the big watch houses into independence. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And, and look, I, I appreciate you saying that. It's 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 definitely... You know, it used to ring really hollow and I used to kind of catch myself a couple of years ago saying, comparing independent watchmaking with independent horology to art, because I thought it sounded incredibly pretentious and snobby, but it's absolutely true. You know, it's it's a thousand percent true. Today, independent watchmaking is perceived as art. And, 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 and that's not to suggest that at the best levels of conventional watchmaking or, or high-end watchmaking from large brands, the same isn't true. You know, when you're talking about stuff being made in tiny amounts, you know, at the highest levels of complexity. But independent watchmaking is just an extraordinarily exciting and flourishing space and people say oh well isn't it uh, you know is it, we is it a bubble are we about to see a bubble burst i mean like this is going to go on for decades this isn't this was something that was the writing was on the wall 10 years ago it's just that it you know it was impossible just like it's impossible to say when patek will sell directly to clients online i haven't got a clue i haven't got a crystal ball but i can be pretty certain based on historical trends and trends in other markets and a little bit of common sense that it's likely to happen Equally, it was absolutely certain that one day independent watchmaking would have its day because when people are desperate for original things, when people are desperate to get watches that they can't get because basically the supply is is vastly choked off relative to the demand, um, in a world that's increasingly informed and globalized with consumers increasingly sophisticated, where websites like Hadinki exist, where people are just going to you know, have, have opportunity to read and inform themselves and hopefully you know, platforms like a collective man contribute it's inevitable that there's just going to be a booming interest. And what's interesting is a couple of years ago, to kind of like finish that point, people did expect to lose money when they sold a second-hand uh, independent watch. Today, they expect to make money. And, that's, and, that, and that is what oh, it yeah. is. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost getting upset at them. It's like howling at the moon. Yeah, it, 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 you, know, you, you don't think that I'm pissed off, that I can't buy some of the things that have like, you know, the thousands of watches that have crossed my desk where I'm like, oh, you know, I can't really justify that today because, you know, I've got these other things I need to pay for. But like in a year's time or two years time, you know, I'm definitely going to put my, you know, my name down for one of those or whatever. And now those things are absolutely out of reach, you know, and I'm having to choose what I buy. It's, it's, but it's better for the market and it's better for the independent watchmakers and it's better for the generation coming up underneath, you know, the, the, the kind right. of what happens when a market succeeds is you would, you incentivize and attract more and more people who have talents who think of it as an alternative to perhaps a, you know, an alter, you know, a, a, let's say a more obviously remunerative safe career path. You want people to feel free to 
follow their vocation. You want people to feel comfortable to pursue, you know, something that they think that they have a talent for, but they're uncertain, you know, as to how other people will see it. And obviously there are negative aspects. There's, there's no debating that, you know, the, you know, the more you commoditize something and the more it becomes kind of a speculative market, the more uncomfortable, uncomfortable that will become at times. But broadly speaking, you know, it is fantastic that independent watchmakers are having their day. And, and, and I can only hope that those who really led the path, like Philippe Dufour, you know, who really, really opened the door and, and like George Daniels, you know, really showed what could be done. You know, I, I hope that Philippe is able to really kind of benefit from much of that kind of investment because in the first 10 years, 15 years, he didn't. You know, he was selling his watches at prices that, yeah. uh, that, that meant and, and through intermediaries that meant that he didn't really make, you know, a, a tenth or a hundredth of the, the ultimate kind of like economic value that his watches now represent today. But that's you know he is now doing you know for his collaboration with people like Claude Sphere, he's he's got a really good opportunity to to get some of that value um, back and and the Grunfeld brothers are, are investing in their new workshop and and you know that's going to allow them to continue to invest in new products and new design lines etc. And Recep Recepi is leading the charge uh, on the kind of younger, very talented end of independent watchmaking. That you also have people like Peter, you know, Flyon. And Gael from Peter Mbeda coming through, or Raoul Pages, and all these guys and 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 women, you know, we there are lots of very promising independent young female watchmakers as well. All these people are coming through, and it's just it's fantastic. And and the greater the prosperity in the market, the more opportunity will, there will be for them to show what they can do. Um, so I'm I'm definitely happy with the direction of travel, even if even if it means yeah, I kind of follow the things that I would have liked to have bought two years ago and should have done, which is my own mistake. Well, I mean, I think to kind of also explain more about the significance of some of the independence for people that are, you know, that just got their Speedmaster, what, if you could like, you know, elevator pitch, explain why a DeFore simplicity is so loved and admired, like what, what would be your explanation on that? So when Philippe DeFore came up with uh, the simplicity, it was, which is a which time is only a, watch, a time only watch. Uh, a very simple time-only watch from a mechanical point of view, but with a level of finishing that is basically almost incomparable even today to kind of anything you can find any, anywhere else, certainly from the big brands and from 98% of independent watchmakers. The, the kind of, the, the space was so small, it was, you know, a, a kind of like he had no idea whether there'd be any interest in it. and he would make these watches and they would they would take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of work and they would be done in a way they would be finished in a way the kind of the way the movement was decorated the way the uh, anglage was done on the edges of the bridges um the way the kind of cut de genève were were um let's call it you know mm. for want of a better word kind of scratched onto the plates onto the movement plates the amount of effort and skill and craft needed to be able to achieve those finishes and the amount of patience needed were completely disproportionate to the kind of economic incentive because you know brands were making watches for the same price or there or thereabouts that required a fraction amount of effort but he wanted mm. to show what he could do he wanted to produce a watch that yes told the time but there was very clearly and uniquely of, of his kind of DNA, of his design. And he would spend a 
disproportionate amount of time applying that craft and skill that he had, not only as a watchmaker in the kind of assembly and the design, but in the kind of the, the finishing of the movement such that, you know, you turn that over on your wrist and you keep in mind that most people, when they're wearing a watch, all they have is the dial side. Who, who stops to look at the movement other than, you know, a glancing, a glancing look where you put it on, where you take it off to show someone? The 90%, 98% of the work would go onto the movement side that you would never normally see and nobody else would see. So it was almost like a kind of, almost like fetishistic, right? There was almost this kind of like fetishistic mm. obsession with the idea of like, here is this unbelievably incredible thing from a craft point of view that nobody gets to know about or see apart from you in the vast majority of instances, but you know that it's there and you know that you have helped someone who has a tiny, small, independent watchmaking atelier in the mountains of Switzerland to be able to make more watches. And, and you're kind of like, you're part of that journey and narrative. And so it's deeply personal and it is, you know, it really is, you know, one of those things where you have to, you have to have a thing for craft and you have to have an appreciation for beauty in extreme simplicity mixed with, you know, a, um, a kind of like a, a, a you, you know, being able to take satisfaction from, you know, only, you know, the briefest of kind of experiences of that, that beauty, because 99% of the time you're not going to see it and nobody will know. You know, there was a time until very recently, nobody would ever know that you had a simplicity. No one would know anything about a watch. They think you just had a very simple watch. And so you had to be able to take pleasure in that yourself and be satisfied with it. Um, and that kind of mentality is very particular. Holy hell. Wow. Now that, that's why your website's so good. I mean, that, that, that explanation far outweighs any other thing I would have read or even understood about some of that stuff. And like, and I'm a fan of, of DeFore and like, and seen that, you know, I mean, but yeah, well, so obviously you've, you've grown, um, a collected man a ton through there, through a lot of editorial and things that are actually outside and adjacent to the watchmaking world. I mean, you got stuff with Jason Jules, you got books, you got music that you guys are talking about. Where, what is, where do you see this going? I mean, is, is you just kind of continue snowballing and growing through there or is the, is the plan to, to go into other objects or other, you know, will you always stay in watches? So, um, watches are the kind of like core activity and passion for, for, you know, the, the vast majority of people who work at a collected man. Um, but we, you know, speaking personally, and I think for, for, for a lot of my colleagues, we love a lot of stuff. You know, where we're, there are a lot of things that get us excited. I, you know, I, um, I like n nice cameras. I like nice candles. I like vintage 1960s desk clocks. Um, you know, I have kind of oh. like, I collect, um, like vintage Hermes, like silver cigarette pots that, you know, nobody wants these days, but I just think look really cool because they're engine oh, yeah. turned and they're, they're, they're a really classic design. Um, so, so we, 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 you know, the collectible space is something that we're going to continue to expand in. Um, on the content side, we, you know, we write about what we like and we, we don't have, um, because of the fact that everything is financed off the balance sheet, because it's, you know, we, we finance everything from the sale of watches. Um, we were conscious of a couple of things. The first is it gives us, an, it gives us a small advantage in the sense that, you know, content can be about anything. I, I, you know, the, the content team have, you know, bar, bar writing about, you know, things that I think would just be kind of, um, not at all on the radar for, for 
for our kind of like target demographic, Let, let's put it that way, or our, our mm-hmm. typical client. Um, you know, the, the content team can write about anything they want. They can commission whatever they want. Um, it's kind of, it's really pretty much unlimited. It's just about things that are interesting. And so, yeah, one day it's a photo- and it's who a photographer. The next day it's um, uh, a really detailed guide to a particular watch model. And then, then it's about, you know, the history of the 9-11 and, and this, that, and the other. I think we'll just continue to expand. I think we'll continue to write more and more things about more and more things that we find interesting. Um, I think that, you know, we've never seen ourselves as, you know, it sounds crazy, but I've always thought there was almost a pejorative kind of um, shadow to the word dealer. You know, we don't see ourselves as, as watch dealers. We've never, I've never seen us as watch. I, I completely understand when we get referenced that way. And, and I, and I take absolutely no offense at it whatsoever. I think that it's the easiest way to probably understand what we do, but you know, we want to be a platform for many different things. And we want to be a platform that doesn't necessarily kind of fit into a, a box that, that's specific to kind of pre-owned mm-hmm. watches. Will we go into other things in the future? Quite possibly. You know, it's, it's always been an ambition of mine to expand into other areas, but we'll do so in a way that I think is very much one step at a time, because there's just no point rushing into things before you feel like you've really kind of like affected as far as possible the thing that you're mainly doing and i think there's still a long way to go as far as the watch space is concerned we've got a huge amount to 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 do um and i think it'll be very interesting very interesting kind of following what we we do in the next couple of months um but yeah i mean it's we'll, we'll i think we'll we'll do more and more accessories we'll do more and more collaborations we'll do more and more we'll make things mm. increasingly that aren't limited to kind of the watch world um, we'll kind of expand into areas that are, that are lifestyle related that, you know, essentially are just things that we would like to have, you know, and, and, and made by people that we like. Um, and you know, it'll, some of those things will be commercial. Some of those things will be completely and totally, you know, uh, loss making, but we'll do them because we think they're cool. Um, and, and some of them will kind of like walk the line and be fine financially, but, but not, not in any way kind of lucrative, but again, we feel like they make sense. So, you know, we'll do the things that we like. We'll continue to expand in this space according to, um, what we feel we can do well or better. Um, we'll constantly try to, we'll constantly try to innovate and reinvent, but without losing our DNA, I think, uh, as far as possible. And, um, you know, above all, we'll, you know, as corny and as cheesy as it sounds, we'll try to have fun. Um, and we'll try to make sure that we deliver a quality of service to our clients, whether they're, you know, the furthest corner of the world or down the road from us, um, that they've kind, kind of come to expect uh, and, and hopefully build on that. Yeah. Have you had instances where some of your clients are asking for sort of additional upgrades outside of, say, purchasing a watch, uh, like to connect that? You know, an example, when we were at, when I was at the Armory, you'd have people that would come in and, you know, it'd start out by buying a shirt. And now they'd be like, you know what, could you come to my house and help me just redo my whole closet? And then you would see that going further to things like, actually, you know what, do you have any good couches you think I should buy? And we were like, what the, f-? you know, but that, I mean, it it makes perfect sense. And this, I bring up furniture because all my friends that are, you know, affluent and well-off are all of a sudden going from watches to furniture. And maybe it's because of a frustration with 
you know, not being able to get whatever watch you want when you want it. But the furniture market and the art market is exploding right now. It's crazy. People, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm also uh, a a budding kind of like uh, furniture buff. I've recently started collecting kind of mid-century Scandinavian furniture like everybody. Um, But I kind of like, I, I had these at the start of lockdown i had like these niels otto muller chairs um oh like i'm sitting on one and then i have like set behind me um i yeah i saw those chairs i was like and i had them reupholstered and like you know the kind of like the stress about reupholstering them and like should i keep them in the original leather that was like decrepit and like in a color that i found like horrible or should i be like you know what i'm gonna get like really high quality italian wool and i'm gonna do this during lockdown everything no one's doing anything i'm I'm gonna try and convince someone to do this for me and like i loved that and i've kept kind of collecting um i want to get some finial at some point but i'm just not sure i'm not sure where that's gonna go but to answer your question um we do get questions like that all the time and we will continue to kind of like we'll certainly continue to expand our content side in into that area i think it's you know and i just think there's something super cool to that idea of like giving advice based on experience and taste to people that kind of um who ask we will you know we will definitely grow our collectible market that much i can say for certain you know we will definitely we're sitting on a large amount of inventory that we haven't Deliberately, we've accumulated the last couple of years that we haven't listed, um, mainly because we like mm-hmm. it too much. But we will definitely expand in the collectible space. Um, and I don't know whether we'll go into furniture because I think there's obviously a question of like how big you can kind of like yeah shipping yeah and and storing like, inventory and stuff like that. And, and that's why we didn't go into the classic car space four or five years ago when I thought about doing that. Um, but yeah, that whole world is super interesting to all of us and. If there's a way of doing it, we definitely will. Um, but I think it's one of those things where we're just going to take it one step at a time. But yes, we have clients who absolutely one day they're like, you know, interested in a watch. And the next day they're like, when did you get those trousers? Like it's really irritating. <laughs> like the number of times you get messages on like DMs on Instagram where like they're more interested in the trousers that the model is wearing. Well, actually it's all our own colleagues. So we, we model all the watch ourselves. But where our colleagues kind of like got their trousers from than necessarily like what the watch is and it's just like fine okay that's that's you know good no it's great there's there's like a uh, you'll see it even on like hadinky stuff too where they'll announce a watch and it's you know it's a a shirt and like somebody's cuff and a sweater and like a few of the comments will be like what's the shirt though That's great. It's I fantastic. mean, I get fantastic. it. Well, it's like you know either either it's lifestyle or it's not. You can't like it, it. what I mean by that is everyone can smell inauthenticity a mile off you know you Mm. can't it's not like a you can't fake it not really you can't simulate it there's either like a there's like a logic an intangible logic a subconscious logic to what you're seeing or there isn't and you know there is a you know everyone we, we you know we pick the watches that we sell we shoot them on our own wrists you know it's not models we don't pick wardrobes we don't have creative directors like setting up shoots it's all shot in house like i think much of the armory is outside of the lookbooks you know it's shot in the stores it's the real guys wearing clothes that they that they've picked um and so kind of you know there is a there is an element of immediacy and sincerity there that i think is is tangible um Mm -hmm. and you know i have a couple of colleagues one in particular uh mateo 
who is just like absolutely obsessed now with um you know uh, period furniture french period furniture and other things from the kind of like 30s 40s 50s onwards um and and he is absolutely lobbying you know our editor to do articles on those topics and it's just kind of like funny sitting in those meetings and just kind of like watching them kind of like go you know backwards and forwards to each other like agreeing on a compromise where it's like well okay yes we can do something on that but we're going to do it with this as opposed to simply being like this uber niche thing you know that that is gonna basically have a an audience of like 50 people um but it but it is fun it's you, I mean, what's crazy though, and I, I echo your Mateo's. Yeah, Mateo. Yeah. yeah, I echo what he's saying because, to be honest, right now, and a friend of mine, we were discussing this. You know, there's not really an accessible sort of like what would you say, like catalog raison of of say Poupe, yeah. right? It's you can't look up on the internet and see these are all the things that were made. And that dude, that's Poupe. Yeah. Like, that's 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 yeah. huge. So when you think of the accessible information on specifically architects in the that are more known for their furniture yeah. than their other stuff it's very 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 yeah. little and so i'm like wondering who is going to be the place that starts holding that information and not even just to help with their seo mm. like which is you know something that would happen naturally but just because no matter what and it's like what we were saying people are going this mm. way people like if if Ding dong, Jeremy is like looking for nice chairs and stuff online, and I don't have the money to do it, but I have enough to to maybe get something a little bit nice. Like, and the amount of vintage stuff that's out mm. there, trying to identify, you know, what era of a Bertoya chair is this from? Is this a Noel Bertoya? Is this when they partnered with this? Do they have the, you know, that is like, and I found myself jumping into that maybe even more so than watches mm. lately mm. because I'm I'm just so surrounded mm. by it. So, um, you know, that is something I'm hoping to see other places start doing because it, it goes hand in hand. Yeah, um, totally. I totally agree. Um, yeah. Uh, but yes, it's a, it's a pain to shift. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the kind of considerations that um, obviously for us from, from a kind of like inventory management point of view, it's quite easy to kind of like store watches and they don't watch. take much space so it's it's quite convenient from that point of view plus the market's booming and so it would be crazy for us to kind of like take our eye off the ball at a time when there's so much opportunity um absolutely but i do think that you're absolutely right there is there is just such an obvious there is such an obvious applicability of the same principles that we were talking about earlier you know from our space and before that men's fashion you know to to other niches that just feel very crusty and kind of um, unloved. There's definitely a big opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're starting to wrap up, uh, and I want to kind of go through just a few sort of like rapid fire things. Um, your house is on fire. You can only grab one watch and it's not on your wrist already. <laughs> what is it? Uh, oof. uh, fortunately I don't keep my watches at home, but, uh, it's, if, oh, if, the real answer. So I, I managed to, I managed to, I managed to get out of that one. Um, but it would be, it would be a, it would definitely be a, I mean, it would have to be one of two. Like it would be a toss up according to, you know, which one I could. Well, resist. you got two arms. You so anyway, so it chest. would be my, it would be a Roger Smith. Um, I commissioned a, a watch from Roger about four years ago, uh, series one. Um, and that was, that was wow. a really special piece for me. And then it would be my Recep Recepi Colomex Bahar, which um, was from the first run. And as we've known each other for five years and we worked together forever and we're an authorized retailer. 
um like i felt like i had to i i did i couldn't buy it new because we had to sell the pieces that we were you know authorized to sell but i bought it off my client's yeah. wrist about six months later when they decided <laughs> decided that they were you know willing to let me buy it back off them for a significant premium on the on the on the on the retail price um Ooh. and so yeah so i would definitely wear both of those watches on each wrist at this point say a collected man store just popped up tomorrow what is the music playing in the store? <laughs> so if it was, if I was looking to try to create a calming environment, um, and I know this is incredibly mainstream, but for as long as I can remember, I've always listened to Einaudi for, for when I need to be like a little bit calm, like going back, you know, 20, 20 years when I was revising for school and then for law school this afternoon, like anytime I need to concentrate, I, I put on Einaudi, I put on my my headphones and I listen to an Audi. So if it was for calming, then it would be that. Um, otherwise, I'm I'm I was a big kind of French electro like fan when I lived in Paris for a couple of years. Um, so I you know maybe Kavinsky, but also like um, it could be MGMT, it could be Daft Punk. What's the scent? You mentioned you like candles. Uh, well, right now I've got um, Bibliotech burning to my left by by Rado. Um, so I, I, yeah, I oh, have yeah. a lot of, um, Byroda candles and then I have some diptyque candles as well. Uh, I like to, um, with diptyque, I, I like, uh, feu de bois. So anything that kind of reminds me of like a wood burning fire, like I'm, I'm all over that every day. I have a candle burning whenever I'm home or going to bed. It's just, um, I think I'm one of those people who's like very, I find it very hard to switch off. I find it very hard to slow down. Yeah. And so I kind of associate a candle on a warm shower of kind of like, okay, like lights down, I can, I can chill out a bit and uh, it helps me kind of like change my, it helps me kind of block out the noise. This uh, thing that I'm sending you, I've been obsessed with buying her, not her candles. It'd be very, the candles are awful. Okay. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name. <laughs> okay. Maybe you know how to pronounce it. I don't. That like, Essenzalziamente Laura. Okay. She's based she's based in Rome. She makes the sense for the Vatican. Oh wow. And yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> it's gonna that's gonna be a lot of um a lot of frankincense and myrrh kind of uh yeah. Yeah. very good. <laughs> I have a, I have but, one that's called Alter actually from Byredo that I that I Oh like yeah, now. I know that scent. That's a great one. Yeah. Um but she does she has a couple different um diffuser scents that I will routinely buy. And it is a stupid amount of money, <laughs> but I, um, it's like, uh, yeah, for me, scent is one of the most important things in my house. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll definitely check that um, out. Yeah. Um, okay. We're about to wrap. Is there anything you want to add or mention that I didn't ask you about where you're like, Oh, I was going to announce we are new watch. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It was, uh, it was nice to, um to do this and um yeah i, I appreciate the opportunity and, and i look forward to kind of meeting properly in person uh well thank you thank you again all right it was great <laughs> to meet you silas i'll talk to you soon cheers Joe. you've been listening to blamo our show is produced by blamo media we're edited by amar law our theme music is always by the mysterious breakmaster cylinder look if you like what you heard tell a friend Share the pod. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You know, do what you do when you like stuff. Just just put some, put some good positive vibes out there, man. Come on, you know what I mean. If you want to talk to us or give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us uh, at 917-267-2495 or just be a normal person and send us an email. That's, that's great, too. 
But uh, ask a question, give us some feedback, whatever you want to do. We'll, uh, we'll Maybe we'll mention it in a future episode. If you want to hang out with us and join the Blam fam, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have just tons of exclusive episodes. We also have now our new exclusive shows with the Triple J show with John Moy and Gian Delian, and pretty soon our Derek Guy show that'll be launching on there. And by the way, there's just an incredible group of individuals in our amazing Slack community. You're missing out, so check it out. Join the Blam Fam. And uh, if not, I'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>